Sketches from Scripture presents Light in the Darkness, a teaching series from the stories of Genesis. Light in the Darkness is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the narrative structure and style of the book of Genesis as context for better understanding of Scripture. This will help us trust more in these scriptures by demystifying them, taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events in real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast scatters your darkness and makes the great light abundant in your life. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com, find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. This is the story of Genesis, and we're looking particularly at the storytelling style in Genesis. I'm a storyteller, I'm a filmmaker, an author, and so I'm mostly interested in what is the storytelling style of Genesis. I think there's lots of good studies out there on the content and the history and the science and the theology and lots of those kinds of things, but Robert Alter's work, Translation and Commentary, uh, Five Books of Moses, is one of the first real uh, documents, at least that I've encountered, that really discusses Genesis from a storytelling standpoint. And there's so much to be learned from the storytelling. So as we've been going through, we look and we see there's the content, there's the things that actually happen. These are real people, real events, real places. But there's also storytelling that is delivering us that information, choosing what to tell us, what not to tell us, choosing uh, which parts of the story to focus on. Uh, doing foreshadowing and <clears throat> alliteration and all these sort of things you learn in you know high school English class. All these things are happening there. And these are things that we can learn and it will help inform all of the other things that we have uh, to learn from in Genesis, the content, the history, the theology, the science, all those things. So we're looking at Genesis. We're going to be looking at Genesis 23 and 24 tonight. As I was going over my old notes, I found I don't have a lot of notes on this section. I don't even have a document where I have all my notes for any of the notes here. Uh, I think what happened uh, last time was I just read through it and talked about some of the things as I read through. And so that's what I'll do tonight. And I've got um, a couple of pictures to show you. I think I have it worked out um, where we can do that. And uh, so I'm going to test that right now and just make sure that that is... Uh, still going through. So this is the light in the darkness title that I made when I was doing this class for the college and careers class at North Boulevard. And again, the title light in the darkness just comes from that first sentence of Genesis where God's spirit is hovering over the the, the darkness, the abyss, the chaos, and God's word speaks light into existence and separates the light from the darkness And really everything that happens right there in that first verse of Genesis tells you so much of what you need to know about um, the book of Genesis, about the gospel, about all of scripture. Um, 
And so that's where we've gotten that title. So it appears that is going to work. So I've got some uh, pictures to show you a little later. Um, nothing too important, but I thought it'd be fun for us to take a look at. So uh, yeah, so we're looking at Genesis chapter 23. So you can go ahead and open up there if you want. I think I'm going to read pretty much all of it this time. Don't normally read a lot of it, but uh, tonight I think that I'll do that just for these two chapters that we're doing here. Again, I'm reading from Robert Alter's translation and commentary. And uh, rather than read and talk about it, I'll probably just read a few things, make some comments uh, as we go through, and then I'll have a few comments uh, at the end. So yeah, let's just get right into it. Genesis chapter 23, beginning in verse one. Well, actually, let's let's do just a short review so that we know what we're coming into here. So Genesis 1 through 11 starts with the creation of the cosmos and zooms down to this one person, Abram. And that is the God who created heaven and earth, zooming down to us, the reader, us, the hearer of this story and letting us know personal relationship is happening and God desires personal relationship. And God has specific things that he asks uh, to each um, from each one of us. And so we've been following the story of Abraham, and we've seen how Abraham was given this promise as soon as we meet him in Genesis chapter 12. And it's taken 25 years and several chapters for that promise to begin to be fulfilled. And we see how Abraham oftentimes takes matters into his own hands, lying a couple of times about who his wife is to other people. And we see that he is uh, possibly thinking, hey, maybe Lot is the way. Uh, my family is going to continue, or or maybe it's uh, Eliezer from Damascus, the servant that lives in my house. Maybe that's the way my lineage is going to continue this promise from God. Hey, maybe I need to have a child through Hagar, and so now Ishmael, my son through Hagar, maybe that's how all of this is going to be carried. I mean, after all, this is now my son, my seed, and um, God has said all the time, no, no, it's going to be your son, your seed through your wife, Sarah. And so Sarah at 99 bears a son, and... His name is Isaac. We looked last night at the very difficult chapter, chapter 22, Abraham and Isaac, uh, the Lord testing Abraham, asking him to take Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice. Uh, beautiful story with a lot to learn. And many of the storytelling things that we learned in chapters 1 through 21 really culminate there in chapter 22. And we see a lot of them happening at once with chiastic structure and some of the dialogue things that we've talked about. So if you're just new to this and you don't know what some of these things are, go back and watch some of the previous lessons and uh, talk very in-depth in a couple of lessons about what is chiastic structure and what is this thing about ancient dialogue. So <clears throat> now we come here to chapter 23 and it says, and Sarah's life was 127 years, the years of Sarah's life. And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abram came to mourn Sarah and to keen for her. And Abraham rose from before his dead. And he spoke to the Hittites saying, I am a sojourning settler with you. Grant me a burial holding with you and let me bury my dead now before me. And the Hittites answered Abraham saying, pray, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. In the pick of our graves, bury your dead. No man among us will deny you his grave for burying your dead. And Abraham rose and bowed to the folk of the land and to the Hittites, and he spoke with them, saying, If you have it in your hearts that I should bury my dead now before me, hear me, entreat for me, Ephron, son of Zohar, and let him grant me the cave of Machpelah that belongs to him, which is at the far end of his field, at the full price 
let him grant it to me in your midst as a burial holding. And Ephron was sitting in the midst of the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, all the assembled in the gate of his town, saying, before we get to what Ephron said, just paint the picture here. I think you can kind of see it taking place. But Abraham is in Hittite territory. He's a nomad. He's a sojourner. He's a wanderer. He's a tent dweller. And here are the men of the city. And so they have this gate of their city, which would have been a big stone wall. It would have been a big opening. So it's not like a, a wooden fence like you would have in your backyard. This is a big stone wall. And the walls are thick to prevent uh, attacking armies from coming in. Remember, that's one thing that we've said about cities is that so far in Genesis, cities sort of represent fear, that they're built in fear, that their center is not the marketplace or the the, the seat of judgment or, or even the temple, but that it's the tower. It's the watchtower. Uh, cities are all about fear in Genesis up to this point. And so we see that here. They've built this big wall and they've got this thick gate. And at the gate, at the entrance, uh, you would basically have like two doors where you would go in through the thickness of the wall. And in between there, when the gates are open in times of peace, there are seats. And the important men of the city, of the town, would sit at these seats. And they're sort of the, the elders, the judge. Um, this is a silly way to think about it. But imagine, you know, when you go down to Hardy's at 6 a.m. or in Murfreesboro, when you go to Donut Country at 7 o'clock in the morning, and all the old men that are sitting in there, Right. And these are and they're all like former police officers and the former mayor. And, you know, and they all know everybody and they remember, oh, you're so and so's boy. You know, these are the elders. These are the guys that know everything. And these are guys that are sort of in charge and they're sort of in charge of all the uh, the, the thinking and the property and and that sort of thing. So, you know, in a society like this, you didn't have complex banking systems. You didn't have complex legal systems. What you had was your word and your word was verified by the word of everybody else. So when you have dealings with somebody, you would come in front of the important men that are sitting there at the gate and you would conduct your dealings publicly. That way, if somebody tries to short shortchange you on, on payment or tries to take more than they bargained for, you've got the public there that has been there and said, no, 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 wait a minute. That's not what you said. That's not what you agreed to. We're going to hold you to what you agreed to. So this is what is happening here. Abraham's gone before the important men saying, please let me have this field down at the end of Ephron's, uh, let, let me have this cave down at the end of Ephron's field. And I'm going to use that to bury my wife. And so Ephron now comes before the important man and he is going to speak. And so we're somewhere around verse uh, 11 looks like. And so Ephron comes there and he says, pray, my Lord, hear me. The field I grant you and the cave that is in it, I grant it to you in full view of my kinfolk. I grant it to you, bury your dead. Now, notice what he says. Abraham wants the cave at the end of the field. Ephron says, oh, the field and the cave, you, you, you can have it to bury your dead. You can, you can take it. Well, it seems very generous, doesn't it? Let's keep reading. And Abraham bowed before the folk of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the folk land, saying, If you would but hear me, I give the price of the field, take it from me, and let me bury my dead there. So Abraham sort of concedes the field to him, but he says, I want to pay full price. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying, Pray, my lord, hear me. Land for 400 silver shekels between me and you. What does it come to? Go, bury your dead. So you see what he's doing now, right? He he says, oh, well, uh, uh, please, please, please take it. In fact, don't just take the cave, but take the entire field. And so it, though it appears to be he's giving it to him, he's actually upping the price on him. Abraham says, no, I will pay the full price. I'll take the field but give me a price. No, please, please just take it. I mean, uh, why would I create a problem in our relationship for, say, 400 silver shekels? 
He's laying the price down. He's not giving it to him. In fact, uh, by any measure, it's an exorbitant price for the amount of land that he's giving him. So he's really doing something dishonorable here. But Abraham doesn't argue. And so we continue reading. And Abraham heeded Ephron, and Abraham weighed out to Ephron the silver that he spoke of in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 silver shekels at the merchant's tried weight. And Ephron's field at Machpelah by Mamre, the field and the cave that was in it, and every tree in the field within its boundaries all around passed over to Abraham as a possession in the full view of the Hittites, all the assembled in the gate of his town. And then Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of Machpelah field by Mamre, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that was in it passed over to Abram as a burial holding from the Hittites. Okay, so one of the pictures that I wanted to show you is of a merchant in Jerusalem that uh, I dealt with. Uh, and this is uh, my good friend who runs the Alabama, the heart of Dixie store in the old city, Jerusalem. This is me standing there with him. Uh, I've seen him a couple of times when I went back in, in 2017. He was still there. His brother that owns the store went to college at University of Alabama. And so imagine the surprise of just walking through old city, Jerusalem, amazed by all of the historical artifacts that are around you, the streets below you, you know, beneath your feet are in some places 2000 years old. And you look over your shoulder and you see Alabama, the heart of Dixie. And uh, what I thought was really hilarious, hilarious in particular was uh, this shelf here where they had um, all the artifacts of the major religions of the world, such as the uh, menorah, the communion chalice, and of course, an autographed picture of Nick Saban. So, um, so this was, this was my guy, this was my buddy. And uh, I went in there because I was so amused by the store. And uh, actually, Conan O'Brien visited Israel uh, a, a year or so ago, and he he visited this guy. Went in the store and, and talked with him. Uh, and he's very eager to show you where he appeared in an American magazine. As it was like Country Living or something, you know. But he was he was super excited about it. And he really likes to show it to you. One, I think that he's very proud to show it to you. Two, he keeps the binder way in the back of the store. <laughs> so he has to bring you all the way back into the store to show it to you. And by the time he's done showing it to you, now he can kind of put his arm around you and sort of show you everything that he has in the store for sale, you know. And I bought a couple of t-shirts, you know, for gifts, like, uh, for dad and, and things like that. And he wanted to show me some jewelry. And I thought, well, you know, Annabelle, my niece, she's into sports and she really likes Bama stuff. Maybe if there's some old cheap something. And he has this silver necklace and he says, oh, I, I will sell you this. It's it's $80. I said, oh, that's you know too much. I'm not looking for anything like that. No, no, no. But for you, but for you, special price for you, my friend. This is the phrase we hear over and over again in every marketplace. Um, for you today, just a $60, $60. And I, I said, you know, I, I just really don't want anything that expensive. It's it's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll pick up something else for her. $40, $40, $40. By the time I got out of there, I think it was $12. You know, it started at $80 and had gotten all the way down to $12. And even at $12, I wasn't going to buy it because I'm like, if, he, if he's gone from 80 to 12, this thing can't be worth that much to begin with and probably will turn her neck green or something. So uh, I'm glad that I, um, I didn't pick it up. But anytime that I go to, to Israel, I like to stop by and see 
uh, Alabama, the heart of Dixie. But this is the sort of negotiations and things that go on even today in the Middle East. It, uh, there will be so many times when we would sort of make eye contact a little too long with a storefront and David Young would kind of look at me and roll his eyes and say, come on, we need to go in. And so we'd go in and we would have coffee and we'd sit and we'd talk and we'd talk about our families and he would show us how long the store had been there, you know, and then he would get the necklaces out and he'd show all the things and we would ooh and ah over them, you know, and it would take, you know, half an hour just to walk through town because we'd always have to stop and have coffee with somebody and uh, and I did pick up a few gifts. I lost a lot of money on these gifts, but as David said, Hey man, you're in Israel, you know, whatever you get stiffed on in the price, just remember, Hey, you bought it in Bethlehem. You bought it in Jerusalem. You bought it in Nazareth. Just forget about it. It's fine. So, um, always exciting times. So this section of the scripture, this section of Genesis is showing us something that's very true about the people. Cause remember, these are real people. These are real places. These things really happen. And this story right here just feels so real, especially if you've been in that culture and you understand kind of how it works. But it's doing something else from a story standpoint. And that is it's setting up something about the next story. So uh, before we get away and go to the next story, I do want to talk about one more aspect of this story. And I'm going to go back to uh, the keynote slides here, not to look at this gentleman, but to look at this place. And this is the tomb of the patriarchs. This was, um, I think it was the first or one of the first places that we visited on the first trip that I went to Israel with David Young and the tour group. And we came up and looked at it from this side, but we actually entered from the other side. So if you're looking at the screen over to the left where that tower is, we went in over on that side. So what you're looking at is you're looking at a building, probably the, I think it's the oldest building built that is still in use ever. So, so you've got, you know, ruins and things that have, that, that are built, um, that are no longer in use, such as, you know, like the Coliseum is no longer in use. Yes, it's a tourist attraction, but they're not using it for rodeos and, and ship battles and that sort of thing, right? But this building is, has been continuously in use. And, and what is, uh, the way it is used now on the right side of this photograph is a synagogue. And on the left side of the building is a mosque. That's right. It's a mosque and a synagogue in the same building. Why? Why is that? Well, because this building is in Hebron, which we just read about. And it is built supposedly over the cave that was just purchased by Abraham. And if you're to go inside this building, you will see, uh, this is in, again, in, in the mosque side of the building where we went in, these small uh, little buildings inside the larger building, these are little shrines where someone is buried. Um, you can look at the um, list of the people that are buried there when you get to sort of the end of Genesis, but you've got um, Isaac and Rebecca and Abraham and his wife, Sarah. This here is um, the shrine that is over Abraham's burial site, supposedly. And so um, I, I say supposedly because I, I didn't go down there and dig him up. You know, obviously nobody's done that for a long, long time. And many of these burial sites are debated, but as to, to my knowledge, there, there's not another burial place of Abraham uh, purportedly around anywhere. And uh, again, this dates back 
2,000 years or more. I think it's over 2,000 years before the time of Christ, during the reign of uh, Herod the Great, I think. Um, but uh, in many places in Israel, there's, I think there's like, you know, three uh, tombs of David and there's, you know, there's lots of argument over, well, no, he's buried here. No, he's buried here. And it kind of, sometimes it depends on whether it's the Catholic side or the Jewish side or the you know, Eastern Orthodox side. But as far as I know, this is the only place where people say, yeah, that's, that's Abraham and his family. So it's, it's pretty well assumed. This, this is the place. This is the exact spot. So again, I just want to stress to you this thing that we just read about here in uh, Genesis chapter 23 is a real event that happened. It's a real place that's purchased that you can go and visit, that you can go and uh, see the tombs to this day. It's real. really happened. Okay, let's go on now to chapter 24. And Abraham was old, advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, elder of his household, who ruled over all things that were his, Put your hand, pray, under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, God of the heavens and God of the earth. So just a little side note here, this, this phrase, under my thigh, is kind of a euphemism. It uh, essentially means, uh, put your hand on my most intimate area, which would obviously be a huge sign of trust, not something we do today, but it was something that was done in several ancient societies as a way of making some sort of binding oath. It's a symbol of trust. If I trust you to put my entire lineage literally in your hand, then uh, I trust you with this task. That's sort of what's happening here. So uh, put your hand, pray under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, God of the heavens and God of the earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanite in whose midst I dwell. So remember, Canaan was the son of Ham who committed a very serious offense against his father and we could assume his mother. And so Canaan, probably the product of incest and therefore the Canaanite people would be anathema to uh, the, the Hebrew people, to Abraham and his family. But to my land and to my birthplace, you shall go and you shall take a wife for my son, Isaac. So he's sending this servant who remains nameless throughout the story back to his birthplace. This echoes 12 chapters ago in Genesis chapter 12, when the first thing God says to Abraham, God says to Abraham is leave your land, leave your birthplace, go to a place that I will show you. And the servant said to him, perhaps the woman will not want to come after me to this land. Shall I indeed bring your son back to the land you left? And Abraham said to him, watch yourself, lest you bring my son back there. The Lord God of the heavens, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birthplace, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, to your seed I will give this land, meaning the land that he's currently in, he shall send his messenger before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman should not want to go after you, you shall be clear of this vow of mine. Only my son you must not bring back there. So the servant says, well, what if she doesn't want to come? Should I take your son there? Abraham says, absolutely not. God has promised this land not the land that I was born in. So if she doesn't want to come, you're free of the vow. And the servant put his hand under Abraham's thigh, and he swore to him concerning this thing. And the servant took 10 camels from his master's camels with all the bounty of his master in his hand. And he rose and went to Aram Naharam, the city of Nahor, which is Abraham's family. 
And he made the camels kneel outside the city by the well of water at eventide, the hour when the water-drawing women come out. And he said, Lord, God of my master Abraham, pray, grant me good speed this day and do kindness with my master Abraham. So again, I just want to point out here, here you have someone praying, essentially interceding for Abraham. Remember, Abraham is the first person listed as a prophet, named as a prophet. And why was he named that? It was because he was asked to intercede in prayer on behalf of Abimelech a few chapters ago. And now we see this nameless servant praying, interceding for the very faithful Abraham. So uh, very interesting. So we, we go on. Here I am poised by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the town are coming out to draw water. Let it be that the young woman to whom I say, pray, tip down your jug that I may drink. If she says, drink, and your camels too, I shall water. She it is whom you have marked for your servant, for Isaac. And by this I shall know that you have done kindness with my master. Okay, enterprising young guy, right? So he's taking the camels down there. They're waiting at the well. He sees the women coming. He says, I'll ask one for water. If she says, not only will I give you water, but I'll also give water to your camels, then I'll know that's the sign from the Lord that this is the one. So he's praying to the Lord. He's praying for sort of a metaphysical sign, but he's also praying something reasonable, right? He's not praying that you know, light to shoot out of our eye sockets or something like this. He's praying for something very reasonable. And he's also praying in accordance with the faithfulness of Abraham. So we've seen Abraham's character develop as he's taken matters into his own hands to the point that finally he is father and he is trusting as we saw in the last chapter, trusting wholeheartedly in the Lord so that the Lord says, now I know you will hold nothing back from me. You have Abraham whose, whose gift, whose um, um, uh, covenant from the Lord is that he would be a blessing to all people, to all the nations, that his seed would bless the whole earth. So it stands to reason that this servant would understand Abraham as someone who is graceful and generous with other people. And so as part of this request, as part of the sign that he asks from the Lord, he includes this characteristic, show me the woman who is graceful and generous because she'll be a good fit for the son of Abraham. So he doesn't pray these things for himself, but he prays these things for his master, Abraham. And uh, it seems that Abraham is someone who has been kind to him. So he prays this prayer. Um, he had barely finished speaking when look. All right, so this begins a series of actions and the actions make it feel like everything's moving very quickly and you, you'll feel the hurried pace as I read through this and you'll hear the word and a lot. That word and at the beginning of a sentence means it's just everything's happening right on top of itself. You see this a lot in the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark really sort of moves through because it's all action and it's all and this and immediately. And the next thing that happened was this. And you'll see that right here. Mark was not the first to do this. It happens right here in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. So uh, again, he had barely finished speaking when, look, Rebecca was coming out. Notice now we are out of the historical past tense, and we are now into historical present tense because everything is happening. Look, Rebecca's coming out, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her jug on her shoulder. And the young woman was very comely to look at, a virgin, no man had known her. And she came down to the spring and she filled her jug and came back up. And the servant ran toward her and said, pray, let me sip a bit of water from your jug. Just what he had said back in his prayer right there. And she said, drink, my Lord. And she hurried and lowered her jug onto her hand and let him drink. Notice how it's sort of drawing out 
giving you a little bit of suspense. Ooh, is, is this going to be the one? Well, she didn't say the thing yet, right? And she let him drink his fill and said, for your camels too, there it is, for your camels too, I shall draw water until they drink their fill. And she hurried and emptied her jug into the trough, and she ran again to the well to draw water, and drew water for all his camels. And the man was staring at her, keeping silent, to know whether the Lord had granted success to his journey. And it happened, when the camels had drunk their fill, that the man took a gold nose ring, a beka in weight, and two bracelets for her arms, ten gold shekels in weight. And he said, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, pray. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she said to him, We have abundance of bran and feed as well, and room to spend the night. And the man did, and the man did obeisance, meaning he, he bowed before, and bowed, bowed before the Lord. The man did obeisance and bowed to the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, God of my master Abraham, who has not left off his steadfast kindness toward my master. Me on this journey, the Lord led to the house of my master's kinsman. So you have this furious pace going on with all these things that are that are happening. And she presents the sign exactly as he prayed for. So now he's going to the house to negotiate with the family. Verse 28. And the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. And Rebecca had a brother named Laban. So Laban's her brother. And Laban ran out to the man by the spring. And it happened when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms. That's a curious thing for the text to point out, isn't it? That Laban is noticing her jewelry. Why might that be? Remember the story from the previous chapter, from the chapter we just read, about the person of the world trying to get as much money out of Abraham as possible. Might it be foreshadowing for this story to let you, so you've got that fresh on your mind as you come here and you see the actions of Laban, because these actions of Laban are actually foreshadowing for what's going to come when we see Jacob uh, chapters later. So, um, when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and when he heard the words of Rebecca, his sister saying, thus the man spoke to me, he came up to the man and said, look, he was standing over the camels by the spring. And he said, come in, blessed of the Lord. Why should you stand outside when I've readied the house and a place for the camels? And the man came into the house and unharnessed the camels, and he gave bran and feed to the camels and water to bathe his feet and the feet of the men who were with him, and food was set before him. Such generosity, such hospitality, which uh, may not have happened if all that gold hadn't been dangling off of her nose and her wrists. But the servant said, I will not eat until I've spoken my word. And he, meaning Laban, he said, speak. And he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master abundantly, and he has grown great. He has given him sheep and cattle and silver and gold and male and female slaves and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master after she had grown old, and he has given him all that he has. And my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanite, in whose land I dwell, but to my father's house you shall go, and to my clan, and you shall take a wife for my son." And I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not come after me. And what you see here is you see a repetition of the thing that happened between Abraham and the servant. Now you see the servant relating that to Laban. Why is this happening? Why are we going through this? It seems very repetitive. Whenever you see things repeated in scripture, what you should ask is, what is different? Is it an exact rep repetition or is something different? Here, what we see different is 
the servant is really sort of downplaying all the covenantal language that Abraham is using. Abraham is very, God, God did this. The creator of heaven and earth did this. This is because of the covenant. And now when the servant comes here, he's sort of downplaying that language to Laban. He's probably noticed him eyeing the gold. He probably knows this is not someone that worships the same God as Abraham. It might be someone who tolerates a worship of any God, but would be very uncomfortable with this monotheistic idea. So he very rightly sort of downplays those things. Now, you may ask yourself, well, isn't that lying or isn't that being ashamed of his faith? I think that this uh, guy is heeding um, what Jesus would say in Matthew, I think it's chapter 10, where he says, um, be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Here, this man is being very gentle and he's being very gracious and he's being very accommodating, but he's being very shrewd. He knows who, to whom he speaks and um, what's going to sort of cut the mustard with this guy. So uh, he goes on. Um, <clears throat> Perhaps the woman will not come after me, he said. The Lord in whose presence I have walked shall send his messenger with you, and he shall grant success to your journey. And he shall take a wife for my son from the clan of my father's house. Then you shall be clear of my oath. If you come to my clan and they refuse you, you shall be clear of my oath. And today I came to the spring and I said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you're going to grant success to the journey on which I come here, I am poised by the spring of water. Let it be the young woman who comes to draw water to whom I say, let me drink a bit of water from your jug. And she says to me, drink and for your camels too, I shall draw water. She is the wife that the Lord has marked for my master's son. Here it's repeating his prayer and the subsequent actions just to remind you of God's faithfulness and how these things played out exactly. I had barely finished speaking in my heart, and look, Rebecca was coming out, her jug on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water, and I said to her, pray, let me drink, and she hurried and tipped down the jug that she carried and said, drink, and your camels too, I shall water, and the camels too she watered, and I asked her, saying, whose daughter are you, and she said, the daughter of Bethuel, son of Nahor, whom Milcah bore him, and I put the ring in her nose and the bracelets on her arm, and I did obeisance and bowed to the Lord, and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham who guided me on the right way to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. And so, if you are going to act with steadfast kindness toward my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn elsewhere. So he presents the whole story, and he presents it to Laban, and he says, what do you think? Can she go with me? And Laban and Bethuel answered and said, from the Lord, this thing has come. We can speak to you neither good nor evil. Here is Rebecca before you. Take her and go and let her be wife to your master's son as the Lord has spoken. And it happened when Abraham's servant heard their words that he bowed to the ground, um, bowed to the ground to the Lord. And the servant took out ornaments of silver and ornaments of gold and garments, and he gave them to Rebekah, and he gave presents to her brother and her mother, and they ate and drank. So notice it says her brother and her mother, and it doesn't mention her father. Probably her father has died, and so that's why the brother is in charge of all the, all the marrying off here. And they ate and drank, he and the men who were with him, and they spent the night and rose in the morning. So Laban's already said, yeah, take her, you can go. And he said, send me off that I may go to my master. And her brother and her mother said, let the young woman stay with us 10 days or so. Then she may go. Okay. So now that they've taken all the gold, now they've taken all the gifts. Now they're uh, thinking, well, we don't go immediately. Maybe it'll be 10 days. And the servant said to them, do not hold me back when the Lord has granted success to my journey. 
Send me off that I may go to my master. So he's done a very interesting persuasive thing here. He's saying, I prayed to the Lord that it would go a certain way. And it went exactly as I prayed. And Laban is the one who says, oh, clearly this is from the Lord. And so now the servant is able to turn that back around on him, right? Uh, when the Lord has granted success to my journey, send me off that I may go to my master. And they said, let us call the young woman and ask for her answer. So remember, this has been overnight. The men have been separated from the women. And so the women have probably had a chance to talk about this. Rebecca's probably had a chance to talk about this with her mother. So they call Rebecca. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, in Hebrew, it's one word, I will go. She didn't have to think about it. The discussion's done. It's clear to her it's from the Lord. This is very reminiscent of Abraham when God said, go to the place I will show you. And Abraham went. They say, Rebecca, will you go? And she says, one word, no discussion, no hesitation, no action, no furiousness, no delay, no stretching out, no uh, tension as we wait to hear. No, immediately, I will go. And they sent off Rebecca, their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister become hence myriads teeming. May your seed take hold of the gate of its foes. And Rebekah rose with her young women, and they mounted the camels and went after the man. And the servant took Rebekah and went off. And Isaac had come from uh, the approach to Beer Lahara, as he was dwelling in the Negev region. And Isaac went out to stroll in the field toward evening. And he raised his eyes and saw. Now, do you remember that phrase from last night? Where Abraham raises his eyes and sees Mount Moriah. And he raises his eyes and he sees the, the ram caught in the in the thicket. And now here, Isaac is raising his eyes to see uh, Rebecca coming. And Isaac went out to stroll in the field toward evening, and he raised his eyes and saw, and look, camels were coming. And Rebecca raised her eyes and saw Isaac, and she alighted from the camel. And she said to the servant, Who is that man walking through the field toward us? And the servant said, He is my master. And she took her veil and covered her face. And the servant recounted to Isaac all the things he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah as his wife. And he loved her. And Isaac was consoled after his mother's death. We don't know how long the servant's journey was. And you'll notice there's no mention of Abraham here at the end of the story. Now, Abraham will will be in, in the next chapter that we look at. But what we kind of assume here is that perhaps Abraham being so close to death before the servant left has died while the servant has been gone. And so Isaac is home. He's by himself. His father has passed on. His mother has passed on. He's living in the tent of Sarah, his mother. And now Rebecca comes to him and he's consoled. So only a couple things to say about this and then we'll be done. Um, so this is a, a beautiful story of marriage, of uh, matchmaking, right? And, you know, as a 41-year-old single guy, I have questions about this story. If some of you may be um, widowed or single watching this, and you may be asking the same question as me, which is, what does this teach us about finding a mate? When I teach this to the college and careers class, that's probably the first question on their mind. Okay, well, what does this mean about finding a mate? I've thought about it a lot. I've studied, I've read and reread this passage, and I think that I can definitively say I have no idea. I don't know what this passage has to teach us about finding a mate. And I think 
The big reason for that is this. Uh, the Bible isn't about me. And the Bible's not about you. The Bible's not about your marriage. It's not about your um, mat the matchmaking, your, your, your finding of a mate. It's not about you. It's written for you, but it's not about you. This is what happened to Rebecca and Isaac. And we should appreciate their story. It belongs to them. It's not for me to sit and pick apart and try and make it my own. Even so, the Bible is for you. It's not about you, but it is for you. So it is right to ask, how can I obey what I've just read? Okay, what I've just read is just story. There's no commands in there. So, so what is there for me to obey? And again, I would just point out Rebecca's obedience, her immediate obedience, her immediate trust in the messenger that is sent from Abraham and thereby sent from the Lord. That her immediate trust, she just says in one word, immediately, I will go. So that's the takeaway, I think, of this section of Genesis. When we are faced with things that we know that are right, when we are faced with difficult decisions about um, where, where to move to, the, the jobs we need to take, um, dealing with our family members, reconciliation, forgiveness, it's hard. It's very hard. We talked last night about Abraham being torn between desperate rebellion and a, a, a hopeful enthusiasm. And we find ourselves there many times. And if we can't obey like Abraham, if we can't obey like Rebecca, then I think we should pray to God that we develop this kind of wholehearted faith that we develop the kind of immediate faith that says, I will go when the Lord speaks. We need clarity on what the Lord says. But when we know there's something that God has put before us, we say, I will go. Now, a lot of times we want to look and say, well, what's God's will for me? And what we, what we mean is, what are the specifics of my life? How's all that laid out? And what job should I have? And what town should I live in? And these kinds of things. These are questions I ask a lot. And those are, those are fine questions to ask, and I believe God has preferences about many, if not all, of those things. But sometimes they're hard to discern. The things that are not hard to discern are the things that are in the 66 books of Scripture. And until we're done obeying those, uh, maybe we don't need to worry so much, uh, just like Jesus says, about what food we will eat and what clothes we will wear. Let's instead worry about uh, make sure that we are obeying the commands of God. When God says, go make disciples, are we willing to say, I will go. I'll do. I'll. Um, I'll bear the time that it takes to do that. I'll bear the discomfort that it takes to do that. I'll give up the space in my home, and the space in my week, that it takes to love people on a consistent basis. So when you're looking at the commands of Scripture, do you have a faith that says, "I will go"? And if not, that's something you can pray about and ask God for, and He will increase it in you. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.